Today you're going to learn how to write for the web to engage more visitors with Dan Petrovich, episode 49. Let's do it. Welcome to the Rebel Growth Podcast. I am Borja Beso, and every week I bring you step-by-step growth and only marketing strategies that you can actually implement in your business to see some results. It's my pleasure to have you here and let's start with another episode now. Hey, what's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Rebel Growth Podcast. Thank you so much for being here as always. Today's episode is going to feature Dan Petrovich from the Gen SEO and we're going to talk about how to write for the web to engage the 84% of people that are not sticking around. Only 16% of people are reading your content. And when you think about it, that's crazy. I mean, that's only 16 people out of 100 are sticking around and reading what you have devoted so, so much time to create. We're going to talk about things like why you should give the answer to the problem of what you're talking about in the first paragraph using the inverted pyramid strategy that a lot of uh, journalists use. This is an old tactic, very known, uh, very well known in the journalism industry. We're going to talk about how to use interactivity and personalization to engage more people and a lot of other things that are going to help you engage those visitors. Now, if you want a chance to win a one-on-one consultation session with me, an entire hour where I will sit down and evaluate your content marketing strategies, all you have to do is go to rebelgrowth.com forward slash Dan, D-A-N. That's going to take you to the SEO where you can read the guidelines for today's contest. Now, without any further ado, let's jump right into the interview with Dan Petrovich. I have with me today the director of Dejan SEO. Is Dejan SEO? Is it Dejan yes. SEO? Let me start again. Dejan. Dejan SEO, okay. So I have with me today the director of DejanSEO.com. He was recently featuring an excellent video from Whiteboard Friday, from Moz.com's Whiteboard Friday, which I love. His name is Dan Petrovic. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, my pleasure. So why don't we start by giving our listeners a little about your background and how it is that you became into the whole SEO world? Well, my my passion for SEO really started out of a personal project. I, uh, uh, in the 90s, I used to compose and uh, perform live electronic music in warehouses and old school rave parties. And... Uh, as part of my uh, passion for electronic music, I started up a website called analogic.com. And uh, with a little bit of work and uh, some some content effort, um, I ended up ranking number one for electronic music at the time. And that really, really excited me. And I realized how competitive I am. Um, so then I wanted to understand as a next step, what is it that brought me to that um, position and how do I earn this uh, status 
um, one thing led to another and I completely changed my career which was originally a multimedia developer. I went from a multimedia developer to a web designer and uh, finally to a marketer. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, that's uh, that's how it took place. I worked with several agencies um, and then one day I decided I'd jump into running solo and started up my own, my own agency. So the rest is history. And how long ago did you create the Jana SEO? Oh, it's been seven years now. Seven years. And are there any numbers that you can share with me in terms of maybe clients or traffic or anything that that can give me an understanding of uh, the size? Yeah, so we, uh, depending on the uh, the type of projects that we work on and the, the scale of work, we range anywhere between 40 to 60 employees. Um, so... We've um, we've got uh, turnover between two to four million dollars at any given point in time, and uh, we deal with clients from all all around the world. So basically, um, primary uh, base is obviously Australia, but we've got uh, clients um, in uh, Berlin and in Spain and uh, America and yeah, pretty much anywhere around the world. So uh, we've been quite attractive for. Uh, those brands that have uh, savvy online marketers working the, with them, for those who follow my blog or watch uh, videos um, and who'd like to sort of uh, apply those cutting-edge uh, SEO practices. Uh, my, my blog is quite, uh, quite read, quite popular. We've got uh, thousands of fans um, around the world, some really interesting places uh, that I never considered. Um, so every now and then I'll discover that I have a fan base, like for example in Bulgaria, a lot of people knew who I was and I never knew that. So it's quite nice little surprises that pop up uh, like that every now and then. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely relate to that feeling of you know the international subscriber base. I recently was looking at my analytics and my my email subscriber list, and I was really surprised to see a lot of countries that I I would never you know think. That would be landing on my, you know, subscribing to my to my email list, um, and I actually, I mean, that that creates a whole a whole lot of you know things when it comes to your strategy in terms of that right. Uh, what kind of buying intent do these people from each of these countries have, and why certain articles, you know, rank better for certain countries. Than for others, so I started doing a lot of research into that whole and you know like cultural background and why certain people responded responded better to certain sign up forms or certain paragraphs, and it was it was fascinating to see that in even inside the English speaking countries, certain countries would respond better to the same content written in different ways like maybe starting starting the, the first paragraph with um, maybe stories about different personalities in different countries or with um, jargon from different countries uh, and it was really really fascinating um, and that you know drove me into this whole world of personalization and you know analytical thinking and all that uh, which in the end leads to, in part, to what I want to discuss today, which is, you know, writing for for the web. Yeah, so it's a very complex um, and uh, poorly understood area, I would say. <laughs> good topic. It's a good topic, 
because I don't think we haven't yet like um, dove dove into the fact that we have so many tools available to create content in a completely different way than the printed world. Um, yeah, like, it's uh, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a challenge, and uh, you only realize how difficult it is to write for the web is when you sit down to write and you actually try to make it web friendly. It's it's very easy for people to um, well some of us have problem they don't know how to start but some of us have the opposite problem we write too much. I'm one of those. I'm one of the offenders uh, because once I once I get started I don't know how to stop. I would just like to share more and more and more. Um, and part of my experience as a as an author uh, writing for my blog um, was that I find that often I write sentences, I weave sentences that don't really mean anything, uh, sentences that don't convey information. They're there to make uh, me sound smarter or embellish content or just improve the style of writing and I realized that people in a nutshell in essence don't really care about it right right people don't care how you write for as long as they get value out of your writing I believe that you could literally write with poor grammar and sentence and have spelling errors and if if you actually share a really valuable piece of information nobody will care on the web um, you know, it's not black and white, obviously. Um, uh, you know, elements like design and, and sentence structure and, and uh, writing style influence uh, things like uh, trust. Uh, people might trust uh, that type of content that's actually uh, better written than the one that looks like it's been thrown very quickly. Um, so there, there's a lot of gray areas around, um, around that. But uh, I suppose the main thing is don't focus about the sentence. Don't, don't focus on the sentence. Focus on what you're trying to say and, and say it instead of um, weaving a pretty sentence. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, I, like a couple hours ago, I was just browsing through Facebook and I saw a picture that said something like, before you write, think, and it listed a couple of things like think if you're actually creating value, think if you're being arrogant or egocentric. It had a couple of things that, that made complete sense that basically would just, um, uh, you know, summarize into create value, you know, make sure that everything that you, everything, every sentence that you're saying uh, makes sense, right? You're not, yes, you're not just yes. wait, wasting people's time. <clears throat> one I, one great um, way of checking to see if your if your writing is in fact meaningful and if your writing is web ready is to call in somebody and ask them to read a piece of content that you just wrote um, and be there present. Um, what I found myself doing is I would write uh, several paragraphs and then that somebody would read the content in front of me and when I feel that they're not quite understanding it I will try to explain it to them and one of the comment and this comment really resonated with me 
when I explained what I meant by my article back to my reader who was in front of me, he said to me, so why didn't you just say it like that, how you just explained it to me? Huh. And that really, really hit the spot. <laughs> and I literally del deleted everything I wrote, and I wrote it down back the way I explained it to him. Um, and this sort of set the path for um, for how how I write today. And uh, yeah, there's... There are several uh, several rules I follow, and they all stem from from the research that I've that I've done. Now, before before I go into uh, how I've come all to all these conclusions, uh, maybe one of my uh, early notions and instincts popped in just reading, being online reader myself. Um, I caught myself often jumping through the content entirely and seeking comments. So instead of reading an article, if I'm interested in a title, I would skip the entire body of the content, go to the comments, and I and I try to understand why am I going to the comments every time instead of reading a, a piece. Huh. And and the answer was after I thought about it a little bit, I'm just looking for a quick answer. And often the top-rated comment is the one that carries an answer or um, an, an elaborated opinion that's concisely written. And one other example of this behavior I, I found on Reddit, people actually write bots that take an article shared on Reddit and summarize it and share it back in the comments area. And these bots actually get uploaded a lot, so they get a lot of visibility. Uh, there are frameworks and websites already dedicated, uh, I think uh, it's uh, tldr.com or something like that, where all you get is just summarized articles shared on the web and people really really appreciate that so another example of how people went wrong in their writing style was uh, simply choosing the wrong format to display the information content is not just text right content could be uh, a video a spreadsheet a tool anything that conveys information so when I run into this uh, piece about I don't know I think it was called 12 foods you don't need to refrigerate these people put um, like a three-minute video um, instead of just writing down the list. So they picked the wrong format to present information. So my comment was just, number one, onions. Number two, garlic. Number three, this and that. Mm. So I actually made a list myself and presented the list in the comments, and everyone thanked me. They said, thank you, Dan, we love you. Um, you just saved us a lot of time. I can't believe they put it in a video. So that's that's an example when people just simply choose the wrong uh, the wrong format uh, to present information. So how is it how is it that we should uh, write for the web? Well, my philosophy um, on the whole thing is I think in a nutshell you should really not as as they would say beat around the bush. Get to the point. If your if your title promises an answer and give that answer in the first paragraph of text. Mm. One of the biggest objections that I find from others is, oh, well, if I give the answer in the first paragraph of text, then my reader is not going to continue reading the rest of the article. And I say, so what? They got the answer and they get out because if they don't get the answer, they'll get out anyway, unsatisfied. So one of my, my early principles is just offer the answers at the beginning. Um, so, and 
this was this was I, I say this with a lot of confidence because our our study uh, that we performed this year um, showed that most people just skip over content. Um, they'll they'll read bits and pieces, but they'll skip uh, boring parts. Uh, a great number of people will also just scan, literally not read anything. They'll just scan looking for quick answers. Minority of people will actually read everything. And um, a frightening big number uh, of people um, actually just read the headline and don't re actually read the content. You can say that, you can see that when people share a post on Facebook and don't really read the post and they're arguing the wrong point or arguing when there's no argument. So it's really, really interesting. Yeah. What do you think? What what type of guy are you when you're reading uh, content? Do you, do you scan over things, or do you read everything? Well, when I was I was when I was uh, reading your study, I w thought about it, and I think it depends on who I'm I'm reading, uh, and what I'm reading. You know, there are some articles that I definitely want to read, so I put them aside and I take some time, maybe in the morning, to actually read the articles because I know I know they they're that good. But that's, I would say that's 5% uh, of the articles I come across, um, or even less, you know. <clears throat> but I would say I'm, I'm a scanner, you know, I read through, maybe I read through to get, you know, the, um, the headlines, uh, maybe go down to the conclusion, and perhaps read the comments, but I, I almost never read the whole article. Yeah, and, and I think, I think, uh, you know, there are two types of readers, the ones that like to read in depth and there's the ones that quickly scan. Hmm. And there's a hybrid, of course. There's, there's people who both scan and read depending on the level of interest. Um, and this, I think this goes in favor of my earlier point that if you give the answer to the question uh, early in the piece, then it's your job as the writer to provide the hook and sell the rest of the content to the reader. So say it is say it what it is that you've discovered or what is the news in your piece and then offer further detail. And I think people who do that really well um, is journalists. Mm -hmm. um, the antiquated but still functional model of inverted pyramid um, says write write the most important these the essential beats in the beginning, elaborate to the secondary information and all the fluff that's supporting and too nice to have but not essential to the story goes to the end. And uh, But I've, I think I've elaborated on this model a little bit because this is web, this is not printed medium, so we have a chance to do things a lot better. Um, so in my, one of my experiments I provided uh, two alternative versions to the reader. Uh, one was uh, the five-minute version and one was the 30-minute uh, or 25-minute version. So they would just click and switch between the two. This seems quite easy when you're using it, but it was really, really difficult to write in that way. How do you compress all your information, everything you wanted to say in a five-minute read? Um, so my initial, my initial uh, mode of text was only to show the five-minute text version. And I would allow people to expand um, instead of linking out to other pages. I would allow them to expand this content um, in line with the text, kind of like accordion navigation. So what starts off as a you know five-minute read could 
by user's choice, end up as a 25-minute read. And that's the key. We give them the choice how uh, and how much of what they're going to read and when. So this gives a nice level of um, interactivity and personalization in content mm -hmm. because every user is carving their own personalized content path throughout a potential piece. So one of the users could read only 25% of that piece. Some of them could read 85% of that piece. But that's okay because the piece was written in such a way that it allows them to drill into deeper information on demand. So this is one thing that I've seen other other people have done in the past. One um, one uh, website is waitbutwhy.com. Mm -hmm. um, they actually provide footnotes kind of like a hover uh, but the problem with the hover method is that you can't really inject a really big piece in, in, inserted in the in the information. So one one of the elements that I found improved how people engage with my content was, of course, enabling interactivity and personalization, allowing them to drill and grow the content in line with what they're reading. Um, so offering in-depth information retrieval. But um, I also made sure that I'm minimizing interruption because they weren't clicking away to external links. I would not take them away to another page because then I've lost them. Um, so, like I said, I would provide them with quick answers and I would allow easy scanning. Breaking up information, using bolding, using bullet points, using headlines. Um, and finally, I think of this piece was essential to people even bothering reading your, your piece was to improve the trust and credibility by citing your sources and just doing doing what you're meant to be doing. If you make a statement, then uh, substantiate it with a, with a quote and a, and a link back to a, a website where you took it from. So all this uh, overall uh, did wonderful things to help people uh, interacted with content. But uh, one thing to really keep in mind is that Google doesn't like this. Hmm. They're saying, do what's best for the user. But if Unless what's best for the user is hiding content. <laughs> because if you do hide content, then we're going to devalue that content that's not visible by default. And this is the reason that this uh, web content page that um, I published now displays the full content piece by default, allowing users to switch to a five-minute version instead of the other way around. Uh -huh. So that, this was my answer to Google not really liking me hiding uh, that uh, that content. Is there any way so, to to tell Google like, hey man, yes, I'm hiding it, but uh, you know, uh, is there any way like to show Google the actual content or no. I don't know. Uh, basically, they're saying if somebody searches for a keyword in Google and they land on a page, and that keyword is not visible immediately on the page, that's bad user experience in their opinion, right? Right. Um, I tried to combat this by allowing Google to deep link. So um, if I have a hash anchor point in my URL, that could actually link straight to that keyword and straight to that segment. But that wasn't good enough for them. They really wanted um, all the content uh, visible up front. So um, actually, for this, for this purpose, I wrote, um, I, I did an experiment. So I published an article on Moz called user behavior data as a ranking signal. And uh, this, 
this piece actually featured use of hypertext. So instead of linking out to other websites, I would provide deep information retrieval in line with the content, with the context of what you're currently reading. So um, people could go to this article, and it appeared not so long, but they could expand it out into a very, very long piece if they were to click on every single link that I provided in that piece. Um, so here's the thing. What I did, I then copied that exactly the same article, um, and I published it on my blog. Uh, maybe a month or two months later. What happened is that my blog outranked Moz for the content that was published on Moz originally. And I believe Moz has a higher authority um, than my own blog, but because my blog showed everything visible and Moz didn't, uh, my website won in the search results. Hmm. To make things even worse, um, I did a follow-up study to that, and I found that even a lowly scraper with zero authority will outrank a website that's of high authority if that website hides information and the scraper shows information by default. So what happened, uh, this was an accidental experiment, more like an observation. The scraper that used the content from Moz, from the article that I wrote, actually didn't have the means of structuring content in a hidden way that just didn't have the JavaScript to handle it and, and, and CSS. So they just by default showed everything. So Google actually outranked uh, the original piece, giving uh, the scraper with zero authority uh, the right to outrank simply because the content was visible by default. I think that's some really, really heavy signal right there to, um, to hint as if you're actually improving the reading experience online, then don't hide things by default. That's the only solution at this point in time. Show everything and give people an option to click on a link to crunch and compress the article into a shorter read. Is there any way to like, uh, is there any way to like um, not index uh, certain parts of the article in order, in order to show Google that everything that is in indexable is available to everyone you know, right away? But then you have additional content that you know is not indexable, but it's, it's to help the user. It's the same outcome. It's the same outcome as when hiding the content. So any visible content on the page that hides content that's retrievable on demand, that that hidden content is not going to rank, and any visible content will rank. So it's not the case like um, Moz's content didn't rank for the stuff that was visible on Moz. If it's visible on Moz, it would outrank the scraper, of course, including my own website. It's only those parts that are hidden that don't get ranked really well. So it's not really an indexation problem. They will index the content that's hidden, but they will not rank it as high as the one that's visible. Um, so one way to do this is potentially to uh, to actually load the content on demand because all the, all the um, HTML for the content that's revealed on demand in my piece was... Uh, already loaded into a HTML page, so Google could see that. One way to uh, avoid that from happening is to um, have that content injected into the page on click using JavaScript. So that's one one way of doing that, although there's no really uh, genuine purpose for it because the effect is the same. The content just one rank. That's fascinating, right? Um, it just gives you, it just shows you how 
even though uh, you know um, a piece of software like Google is trying to provide users with a remarkable user experience, it shows you that we are always one step ahead of the machine in cases like this. Um, yes, and I think this is this is one of those cases where uh, Google should react. It's it's always the SEO industry that bends to Google's demands. Yes. And whatever carrot they wave in front of us, including uh, the uh, uh, HTTPS as a signal, mobile-friendly, and now they're waving another carrot for the accelerated mobile pages. Um, you know, all these things are being waved in front of us, but I'm waving another carrot in front of Google. I'm saying, why don't you improve your algorithms if you notice that something is really good for the user? And I, I, I went deeper into the subject and I found possibly the core of the problem. If I was to use a commonly used technology like tabs on accordions or something that's uh, widely present on the web, I don't think it would have been as much of an issue than something that I've uh, invented myself that's new and exotic and unknown to Google. So I think uh, my advice is when you're writing for the web, don't structure your piece of content in any way so it's not visible by default. But if you have to, at least use commonly available technology. There's a really good, old but good video by Matt Cutts where he actually elaborates on this. So I'll um, I'll share with that that with you afterwards. You can uh, you can link up your your listeners uh, with that link specifically. Um, so um, another thing worth pointing out is that um, it's it's how it's not just how you write; it's how often. I think SEO industry has maybe misinterpreted some of the advice that Google's given out. And instead of focusing on writing the best possible quality content, people are just calling it, calling it quality content and pumping out pretty average stuff, right? right? So you have a schedule, you know, say, we have a new post every Thursday. So you feel compelled to write and schedule and even if it's not the best content, you, you still, you know, it's it's Thursday, so we have to have something up, right? Um, so this is a problem because I'd, I believe you shouldn't write unless there's something to write about. And I apply, I apply this practice to my own blog. I only publish when there's something worth talking about. Otherwise, I shut up and I don't talk about it. So that was my, one, of my, one of my principles. The problem is that Google has a page on their website that's, literally says create valuable content. Um, the problem is that people just read the headline and they didn't read deep content of this page. Google actually went on to elaborate what they consider to be uh, high quality content. They're saying be engaging. That means that people should love the piece that you're reading and engage with it. Click on it, copy, paste, bookmark. Um, uh, send email the, the URL to their friend. And Google's actually listening to these signals. They're actually observing what happens on the page. And they can do a lot of that to interpret what a good user experience is. So being engaging is not just a matter of pleasing your customer, but also sending good user engagement signals back to search engine. Um, there's, uh, ironically, the, the post where I elaborate on these Signals is the post that I mentioned earlier is how I structured the content. It's called user behavior data as a ranking signal. If you just Google that, you'll get to it. 
It, it really elaborates on what it means to be engaging with your content. Another thing that Google says is you need to show your site's credibility by using original research, citations, links, etc. So you really want to uh, give a sense of trust to, to your reader. That's like really, really important. And here's probably the one that's really one of the most difficult things to achieve. Google says, be more valuable and useful than other sites. I think that's like really easy to write down, but it's really hard to achieve. So how do you get to be more valuable and useful than other sites? Um, well, I recommend uh, Ren Fishkin's White Boy Friday where he says, good, unique content needs to die. Now, it's, it's, a, it's an unintuitive concept. Why would good, unique content need to die? Because it's not, the answer is for the web, writing for the web is not, it, it's no longer enough to have good, unique content. You need to have the best content. Of, of course. Yeah, exactly. It can't be good. Good is not good anymore. <laughs> it's kind of like saying, well, good would be good if you every, every other piece of content was bad. Then you kind of stick out. But if every other piece of content is good, then you're just another good content. You need to really uh, stand out. Um, and I think... Um, we, we spoke about a lot about uh, you know potential writing styles and be concise and and write short and to that point I can share one more tip you know use HemingwayApp.com uh, put in your entire piece of content in there and see if you're writing too much fluff or if your sentences are unclear the tool is really good in uh, helping you write concisely um, so I think one one other thing to mention is there's many reasons that people write. Sometimes you want to share a piece of news. Sometimes you want to reveal uh, some unique insight that you have. But other times, you're just simply storytelling. So there's, of course, ways of um, writing in each one. But I think uh, those principles of getting to the point and, and hooking the reader in um, apply across the board. Um, the type of content that I found is particularly effective uh, for for search traffic is your evergreen content. Bread and butter resources that people find helpful, they go in and they get out and they're pleased with that. Unfortunately, this type of links doesn't always, uh, this type of uh, content doesn't always earn you uh, links. It doesn't necessarily drive rankings for the rest of your site. So I found that newsworthy content tends to spike with citations and links and get people talking about you. Um, so one of my rules is to catch the news early, newsjack, or make the news myself. Come up with some unique insight and then share it with the rest of the world. Um, so for content ideas, I sometimes jump on Reddit uh, to rising topics, or I go to controversial topics where people argue, or even on uh, Google uh, Trends, and I and I try to snap up a, re uh, a rising topic. I was just writing that down. <laughs> That's re really good advice for finding content and uh, really good advice for trying to write content that actually gets linked to, you know, because uh, with an SEO mentality, that's something that you definitely definitely want to achieve in a wide hide sort of way, uh, yeah. white hat sort of way. Um, man, thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, you provided a ton of value. Um, I have a question for you that... Uh, it's based on the fact that my mantra, my 
podcast mantra and my blog's mantra is that the customer always comes first in regards to everything that you do for your business or for your project, for your nonprofit, whatever it is. Who is your ideal customer? My ideal customer is a company of my own size. We discussed this at great length, and uh, it's the it's the customer that's um, got money to afford to do wonderful things that we'd like to achieve, but has the flexibility to actually go ahead and implement it. We've worked with some very big brands, and they would implement things we advise within 12 months, which is <laughs> in internet terms like uh, a century. Yeah. Um, so I find this medium <laughs> medium band um, of of healthy size but not too big companies to be the most agile in terms of implementation. These are the types of clients we can actually um, throw ideas at and get some really good quick re- response. And we find those to be particularly um, good with brainstorming sessions and creative ideas. Um, to give you a, an illustration is. Um, I was recently facing a problem of a boring product page. It was an accommodation page, and it had a price, photo, and description, right? Like any other e-commerce product. Right. So what I thought, how can we improve value of this page? And I proposed to my client to of this ideal medium size to survey people and ask them what the best places to eat are around this um, or, or around this uh, city where I was uh, interviewing. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to attach that insight to a product listing. So um, this was, in this specific case, this was Sydney. And uh, we asked people living in Sydney what they, where, what's the best place to eat. Amazingly, everyone, most of the responses were McDonald's. Um so this was a bit of a shocking uh, news to us. We were really surprised. But we actually ended up creating a whole creative campaign around this piece of news, uh, reaching out to journalists and getting uh, fantastic media exposure um, and following up uh, following up uh, with uh, everyone else involved in the campaign, like the second and third and fourth place on the list of people's choices. So the idea was, was to tie the, uh, the found insight to the client's uh, product listing and add additional value. Now, this can be done really rapidly and and, uh, quite well with um, medium-sized client. With big corporates, tends to move a little bit slower, whereas very small business just wouldn't be able to implement that feature on their website. So this kind of illustrates my my ideal client, the, the one that's happy to brainstorm and come up with really cool creative ideas um, to give people the reason to talk about them, and uh, that would be that would be my um, ideal client. I'd have to say, really good, man. Thank you so much for everything. I really appreciate it. Um, any place people can go to stay connected with you and learn more about you? Yes, uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Dijan SEO, um, and uh, happy to answer any uh, any questions or. Um, link you to any resources that I mentioned today, but we may not have linked it in the uh, on the page. So yeah, feel free to connect, and I'll be happy to uh, chat to you. Thanks so much, man. Um, I appreciate it, and I really hope to have you again in the future. Likewise, look forward to it.
right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan Petrovich and that you learned what it takes to engage more visitors in your website. Now, I want you to remember that in two days, uh, that's on Thursday, I, I'll have two more episodes of the bite-sized marketing sessions here at the Rebel Growth Podcast, actionable tips that you can implement right away. Until then, guys, thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep on going. Thank <laughs> you.